But today we are on our part uh, three of a four-part series called It's the End of the World as We Know It, But I Feel Fine. Can everyone say, I feel fine? We feel fine. We're going through this series because everything around us in this world is screaming that the end of the world is coming near. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at the state of our world. And to be honest, it doesn't look really good. If you step back and look at the world and all the stuff that's happening with the political realm, the climate change, all that stuff that's going around, and whether you believe it or not this morning, I think we can all agree the state of our world is not looking the best. It's not looking the brightest. Uh, hostility and conflict is at its all-time peak. Uh, we have been in a war for many years. Uh, technology is rapidly developing. And while we love our technology, I love my smartphone. Um, this church is operated through technology. Um, but the thing with technology now, it's, uh, we're getting this stuff called AI, artificial intelligence. And due to that, um, we're finding out AI technology actually works better than uh, human worksmanship. And so uh, human jobs are being replaced. And so now we're kind of caught in this conflict of losing jobs so jobs can be more proficient. And there's a whole conflict with that. Um, our world's landscape is changing. And the biggest one, at least for me, um, is that just the love for one another, just love for human beings is diminishing. Just love for people. And I think, it's, I, I don't know who's to blame for that, and I'm not gonna play the blame game, but I think in this day and age, uh, more than ever, we love people according to their personal beliefs, their interests, and according to our biases. And if I read scripture, which I have, and I've read it uh, quite a few times, Jesus says, love everybody. Love everyone. Love your neighbor just as much as you love yourself. He doesn't say love them according to their skin color or their doctrinal beliefs or who they voted for in the politics or if they believe in climate change or not or what their lifestyle. Jesus says love your neighbor just as much as you love yourself. And so right now, it's just, there's, there's a huge hatred for humans between one another and it's causing a lot of strife and even uh, it's hurt the church and our mission to reach people with the love of Jesus Christ and asking them to uh, asking God to change their lives and because of this some of the great thinkers in our life uh, in our lifetime have been screaming the world is about to end in fact scientists uh, I don't know if you guys know this but there's, there's this thing called the doomsday clock it was invented when the Berlin Wall collapsed and uh, right now, well, back about five years ago, they moved the doomsday clock called, uh, they moved it back to two minutes to midnight, which pretty much means at any point in time, according to scientists, our world will just go because of humans. And it's interesting because the last time it was like this, it was back during the Cold War where the whole world was in fear and in strife and worry and anxiety. And I think a lot of times as Christians, we dismiss all of this stuff and we say, no, the God is, is God. He's gonna do what he wants to do. So uh, we don't have to worry about what our part in is. And I would actually argue the opposite. We need to worry what our part in this world is because the hope of Jesus Christ is shared through us. The hope of Jesus Christ is shared through us. And so I would say this as Jesus followers, we have an obligation to worry about the state of our world to be on our knees praying and fasting, asking God to intervene, and more importantly, asking God to give us the open opportunity to share the love of Jesus Christ to those who are far from him. We're not Christians called to be in the stands or just fans and rooting on other Christians while they do the hard work of the gospel. 
We're called to be laborers of the gospel. And so right now, it seems like it's doom and gloom. But as for Christians, we studied last week, and this is no surprise, that Jesus actually said in Matthew that these things are actually about to come. So the the pestilence that we read of, the the hurricanes and the uh, earthquakes and the wars and the rumors of wars, Jesus said, hey, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And so while we Christians, we, I believe we have an obligation to, to be concerned about the world, we do not need to be stressed and worried over it. Because as Jesus followers, while everyone says the world is ending, we can say, yeah, I know, but I feel okay. I feel all right. And the reason why I think we need to get to that point is because that will be the drawing light for those who are far from Jesus because they're gonna be running around to all these foundations that crumble, that get torn apart and dismantle. But let me tell you, our foundation is Jesus and he does not waver. And while everyone else is looking for a firm foundation, hold on, we've got our firm foundation. And let me tell you, when they see you unmoved in spite of what the world is going through, do you know who they're gonna be running to? You. Wondering what you have, why you're okay. What's this peace and security that you got? And there is your open door to share the love of Christ. And that is why we're going through this. And that's why our goal for this series is that because of what Jesus says in the Bible, because we can learn that we have this hope that is not found in this world, but in Jesus Christ, the world can scream. It's the end of the world as we know it, but I feel fine. I feel okay. And in fact, I pray at the end of this series, and especially at the end of this message today, this is a really big one, is that you would not walk away with more stress and worry. Actually, you'd walk away with a little more hope in your step. You'd walk away knowing that, yes, Jesus is in control and that you would know that it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. And so week one, we took a look at human progress and wondered if humans were so great, why haven't we fixed all the issues of the world? And we found out that by looking in Genesis 3, we have this thing called the knowledge of good and evil. And because we have this knowledge, it gives us the knowledge to spot out issues and problems in this life, but it doesn't give us the wisdom to solve it. In fact, anytime humans attempt to fix things without God included, we're just playing God. And when you exclude God from the solution, it's not the right solution. Let me say that one more time. If you exclude God from the solution, it's not the right solution. God needs to be in the solution. Week two, we took a look at the apocalypse. Uh, We studied a little bit of what Jesus said about the end times and the destruction of the world and even read in the book of Revelation. And we really described heaven. We took a look at what what comes after this life and we kind of end on this conclusion that it doesn't matter what you believe, you're gonna find out if it's true or not once we die. And it's kind of a kind of grim topic, but for those of us who follow Jesus Christ, we, we looked at what heaven looks like. And I'm telling you, heaven is an incredible place. And that is why as the Rock Church, we are so determined and passionate on reaching our community. It's because we just don't wanna enjoy heaven for ourselves. But in fact, our job here in this lifetime, our job is a mission to crowd heaven as much as possible to crowd heaven as much as possible. So we want to bring people with us. And you can catch up on all these series at therockmp.com. And today we're going to look at a very hard topic called us versus suffering and evil. Us versus suffering and evil. We did a little experiment on Facebook uh, and asked if you could ask God one question, what would it be? And there's some interesting uh, questions, but have you guys ever thought about that? Like if you had one question asked, what would it be? And I think all of us would have a question we would ask, but this is what people would ask if they only had one question. Uh, one person says, 
uh, if they could ask God a question, it'd be, why do people choose to continue to live a life in darkness even after they found you? Another person asked, will my kids be okay without me when I'm no longer physically here on earth? A few people actually responded saying, God, when are you coming? Uh, another one responded, why are you so wonderful? Uh, why are you the best? And she must be going through a really great time in her life. Uh, and how did you make such beauty? Which is a really, really great question. Um, another lady asks, when will things get a little easier? Anyone here ask that question to God? God, when's my life gonna get a little bit easier? Um, another person asks, hey, when's your son returning? It's interesting on the whys that we have for God. In fact, um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you go on Google and you type a question or like, for instance, uh, I'm, I'm in love with like tutorials. And so I, I try to learn as much as I can from YouTube, which is not always the best. Um, but you can type on, say you want to build like a patio. You can go on Google and say how to build. And before you put the word patio, Google will insert the top trending results. So it can be boat, canoe, yada, 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 yada. And finally you see patio down there. And it's this kind of autofill suggested search. Well, I was kind of wondering like, what would it look like? Like, has, did people ask God through Google some things? I think a lot of times we do that as humans, don't we? Instead of asking God, we just ask Google. Come on now. Like we get to that point. And so, but I, I just wanna like, if you typed in God, why, what would pop up? And these are the top suggestive search results that we got is this. Number one was God, why me? God, why am I here? God, why am I single? God, why am I so lonely? God, why am I so unhappy? God, why am I going through this? Man, if you could just like step back and just look at the kind of the bigger picture, these are just mere search words, but you could see a lot of hurt behind these questions. A lot of pain, confusion, and insecurity. And really, a lot of suffering. God, why am I going through this? Suffering. God, why am I lonely? Suffering. God, why? Because I'm suffering. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today, that if God is God and we believe that he is all powerful and he's real and mighty, then why is there still suffering and evil in this world? That if God does want the best for us and he does love us, then why do I and the people I love still experience suffering? It's a really hard question. In fact, it's an interesting question because it's not only our faith that struggles with this. In fact, uh, there's this really fancy word called theism, just means a religion that believes in a deity. So you got the Muslim faith, uh, Buddha and Confucius, that, that's all theism. But every religious faith in the world struggles with this question so much that Ronald Nash, he says it this way. He says, every philosopher believes that the most serious challenge to theism, to religion, was, is, and will continue to be the problem of evil and suffering. So just to say, it's not just us that struggles with this question. The whole world struggles with this question. Every person struggles with this question, not just Christians that struggle with this concept. Because again, if you look back at the world, we see this wrestling match between good and evil, really. Every movie you have seen is a wrestling match between good and evil. Every book that you've read is a wrestling match between good and evil. And just in the 21st century, the 20th century, if you just look at the state of our world, 
It just looks like God is wrestling with evil. And just this century alone, due to wars, we've killed more than a million people. Starvation is on the rise. Suicide is an epidemic with this next generation. The refugee crisis is just, you can name one thing after another, after another, after another, and it all comes down to this. People are suffering. God, why aren't you doing anything? And if I can just be honest with you this morning, it looks like the wrestling match between God and evil, it seems like evil is winning. Pastor Vaughn, how can you say that? We're in church. You're supposed to give us hope and, and encouragement. I mean, this is just what the world is thinking. If God is really God and he's really there, well, he's losing this huge battle between him and evil. It's a heavy question. And it's a question that we've asked our friends and our family and even we've asked the church and our Christian friends. And, and again, maybe you've asked that question to the church. We Christians have a horrible habit of giving really dumb answers. When it comes to tough conversations like this, I just lost my child. Can you explain to me why God would allow that to happen? I don't know. I'll pray for you. Prayer does help, but that didn't really help the person in their questioning. So I apologize for that. And, and, And my hope is that through this, by the end of this message, is that you'll, have, you'll, you'll actually have an answer of why, why are we suffering? Why do we suffer? And there are people in this world that think Christianity avoids suffering. Let me, let me tell you something. Those people that think Christianity avoids suffering, they really haven't read the Bible. You flip 10 pages either, either way, it's, you see someone suffering. In fact, the Bible talks about human suffering from Genesis clear to Revelation. And so I would say this, Christianity, we have the answer to this hard worldly question. And I think if we can answer this correctly, we could probably do a little bit more good with this. And so if we can get to this question, this is the first kind of blank in your notes there. You can fill this in. This is the big question that we're gonna answer. If God is really God, then why does evil seem to be winning? If God is really God, why does evil seem to be winning? If you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. I believe that we can find our answer in scripture with a lot of of our issues in this world. Um, But this is a very large portion of scripture. In fact, this is probably the largest portion I've ever read here on the platform. And so I want to encourage you to go on this journey with me as we read this story. A lot of us know the story. If you go to to church on uh, on Easter, we read the story a lot. Um, But I want you to do something that's a little bit differently because we're gonna go back in time about 2,000 years And I want you to put yourself in the shoes of someone that believes Jesus is who he says he is. And you're gonna stand here and you're gonna watch this trial take place. And you believe that Jesus says he is the son of God, so you know he is the son of God. You've seen the miracles that he's done. You've seen the good things that he's done. You truly believe he's a very, very good person. In fact, if you're a believer or not, every great thinker does believe that Jesus exists. It's the issue of son of God that they wrestle with. But you believe that he is son of God this morning. Just go on this journey with us because we're gonna take a look on this account and see how you would react to an innocent person going through some suffering. One of our fundamental beliefs as a church is that Jesus is our hope, amen? Jesus is our hope. But on this day that we're gonna read is the day that hope died. 
And I want you to go through this with me. And we're gonna end on a good positive note and I pray that it encourages with you. So let's pick this up at verse one. And I'm gonna read, it's uh, Luke uh, one through uh, 48. Like I said, it's a large chunk, but we're gonna read this kind of verse by verse. I'm gonna try and narrate it for you. I'm gonna take pauses here and there to explain a few things. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, you can tune in on the screens behind me. But this is where we're gonna pick up on verse one. Remember, you are part of the crowd. You're in the shoes. You believe that Jesus is Jesus. He is son of God. And you're witnessing all of this that takes place. Verse one, it says this, the entire council took Jesus to Pilate and the Roman governor. Really quick, the council there is the religious leaders. Uh, to give a little background, the religious leaders deemed Jesus a threat. Because for some reason, now everyone's following Jesus. They're not following them. They're not showing up to the synagogues. They're not listening to their teachings. They're following this guy named Jesus. And so Jesus is really interrupting their way of life. And so for the last three years, they've been contemplating when's a good time to throw Jesus under the bus? Like when's a good time to get Jesus in prison? Let's, just, let's deal with this guy named Jesus. And so they finally found this time and they're gonna do something in a way that it's just, it's very, it's a scandal is what it is. They arrested Jesus at midnight, which was illegal. And instead of them dealing with it with their religious rules, he's taken them to a Roman rule, which is the Roman rule. It's either you're innocent or you die. And they want Jesus to die. So the entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. They began to state their case. And this is what they said. They said, this man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes. What's so important to government? Money. What's the best way to throw this guy underneath the bus? Tell him he's not paying their money. And so they're saying he's not paying their taxes to the Roman government by claiming that he is Messiah, a king. Now, one of us are asking, is that really true? No, this is a lie. In fact, Jesus did tell him in previous biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he told them, pay your taxes. So Christians in this room, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Even Jesus paid his taxes. But they're lying, and so they're like, oh, let's just kind of get him there. So verse three, he says, so Pilate asked them, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you said it. Pilate turned to the leading priests and to the crowd and said, I have found nothing wrong with this man. Again, you're a Jesus follower. You're like, oh man, like they didn't get away with it. Like Jesus is okay. He's good to go. Pilate turned to the leading priest, to the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. Verse five, then they became insistent. This is the crowd. Because he's causing riots by his teaching, wherever he goes, all over Judea, from Galilee, and to Jerusalem, which is another lie. He wasn't causing riots. Jesus was a very good guy. What was happening is Jesus performed miracles. He did some really cool things, and people were gathering in the thousands, crowding around. Really quick side note, church, when Jesus is in the mix, expect the light to turn on and people to come. That was a good part for an amen. We'll wrap that up towards the end. So verse six, he says, oh, is he a Galilean? Pilate asked. And when they said that he was, Pilate sent him to Herod, to Antipas, because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the, t at the time. Jurisdiction issue was very much similar. If you got a ticket in Lincoln County, you can't go to a different county to pay it. So we're gonna send him to Herod. Really, Pilate, you're gonna see, Pilate was just doesn't want to deal with this. So he's trying to send him around. So verse eight, Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he heard about him and been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. He wanted to see Jesus do his tricks. He asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law stood there shouting their accusations. 
Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Again, you're watching all of this. You're watching this. Maybe you're wondering, God, if, you, if this is really your son, why are you letting him be treated this way? God, if this is really your son, why are you swooping in? Finally, they put a roller robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. Herod and Pilate had been enemies before, but now they became friends that day. Then Pilate called together the leading priests and other religious leaders along with the people, and he announced his verdict. Let's stop right there. You see all that what Jesus had to go through. A lot of us, we've gone through some suffering, and we really hope that there's gonna be light at the end of the day. And more times than not, there is light at the end of the tunnel. And we have hope at the end of the day. And right here, if I could be in front of Pilate and seeing Jesus, and Pilate says, hey guys, I've got my verdict. I would probably be thinking, Jesus is good to go. Yeah, sure, he went through a lot of mocking. Who doesn't? He went through some stuff. Who doesn't? We all go through that. But now Pilate, who who has the answer, the verdict, where his word is law, Jesus is good to go. And if God's his father, Why would God let anything happen to his son, right? He continues, you brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. Again, that was a lie. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and to find him innocent. We won, right? We're good to go. Jesus is all good. God saved him. Even Herod, verse 15, Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. Right now, we would be celebrating as Jesus' followers. We would be throwing a big comeback home party. We got all the best food. We're ready to, to, to have a party. And it's just, it's, it's good. Are you guys following me with me this morning? I want you to feel these emotions because a lot of us, when it comes to suffering, we feel the exact same emotions that are about to follow. So verse 16 this is Pilate says, so I'm gonna have him flogged and then I'll release him. Now that's 2,000 years ago. That's how he did it. That's how they did it. He believes he's innocent, but to appease the people, those who love Jesus and those who hate Jesus, he says, I'm not gonna kill him, but I'll hurt him enough for those of you who hate him, you'll be okay. You'll feel like you got your justice by me beating him. Verse 18 says, then a mighty roar rose from the crowd with one voice they shouted, kill him. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas was in prison for taking part of an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. So Barabbas, a guy who was actually guilty for doing something bad, they're wanting that guy instead of Jesus. Jesus was innocent. This dude was in time for murder and for rebellion. And at this point, historically, at this time of the year, they would actually have a choice of who they're going to release, kind of like a second chance program. Like, hey, you can pick one person to give a second chance in this world to be with you and forgive their sins and all the bad things that they've done. And they had a choice between Jesus and Barabbas. And they said, we don't even like that guy so much so we'll take the murderer over this innocent guy. And so they're crying, release Barabbas. Pilate argued with them and says, because he... Because he, Pilate, wanted to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I found no reason to sentence him to death. So I'm going to flog him, and then I will release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, 
demanding that Jesus be crucified and their voices prevailed. Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded and as they requested. He released Barabbas, the man in prison for insurrection and murder, but he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. You know the saying that we have, the saying, I'm gonna wash my hands of you? This is where we get it from because in another account, Pilate actually says, his blood is on your hands and Pilate physically washes his hands because he feels so guilty condemning an innocent person. In fact, he feels so guilty about this that he couldn't even sleep at night. His wife was having nightmares about what they were doing. Do you guys see the wrong in this trial? The scandal that was happening? I mean, if this was in our news flash today, there, there would be protests everywhere. People would be signing petitions. There could actually be a war started over something like this. And if we were followers of Jesus, we would see all this and we would be asking, God, why are you doing this to your son? Or better yet, God, why aren't you doing anything? So they led Jesus away. A man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming from the countryside. The soldier seized him and put the cross on him and made it carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women. You see, here's, not everyone hated Jesus. There's actually a crowd, a core crowd, that really believed in Jesus, who he was. So you're not the only one in those shoes wondering, God, where are you? But Jesus turned to them and said, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. This is where it gets interesting. For the days are coming when they will say, fortunate indeed are the women who are childless, the wombs that have not borne a child and the breasts that have never nursed. People will beg the mountains, fall on us, plead with the hills, bury us. Weird thing to say, right? And what Jesus was pretty much saying last week, we read that Jesus taught this in Matthew, where he said, you know, things are going to get bad. And Jesus again is saying, things are going to get bad. And by this point, he says something very interesting. For if these things are done when the tree is green, what will happen when it was dry? He was saying, if you think it's bad now with me on the earth, wait till I'm gone. It's gonna get real bad. But let's rewind for a little bit. Maybe you've been in that position where you're pleading with the mountains to crumble on you that the hills would bury you. Maybe you're one of those people that you woke up this morning wishing you never woke up in the first place. You've had so much pain in your life that you're wanting death to come. I pray that this story will actually give you hope because you're gonna see something that I think of the world is missing. Verse 32 says, two others, both criminals, were let out to be executed with them. A lot of people died by execution with crucifixion and he was, he was dying a murderer's death, sinner's death. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right, one on his left. So there's your hope. Nailed to a cross. He was flogged, had a trial that was rigged. It was unfair. There's your hope pinned to a tree. For many of us and for many of people on this day, that was game over. Who can come down from that? 
seems that God is ignoring us. Jesus has been forgotten by his father and it's game over. And you may find yourself in the same exact place as this, where you think your life is game over. You feel like you can't come back from this. You've hit rock bottom. You don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And you don't know tomorrow will even be there. It's a very real emotion. And it would be a shame for the church to ignore this. It's an emotion that I have experienced. It's an emotion that many of you have experienced. And sadly, right now, it's an epidemic that's happening in the current generation. This next generation, studies show that 70% of them will be clinically diagnosed with anxiety. And people are just calling them snowflakes to suck it up, to get over it. I'm telling you this because that is not the right way to show the love of Jesus to a generation that it's going to be clinically diagnosed with anxiety where suicide is on the all-time rise. It's a very real emotion, church. An emotion that I hope you're feeling right now as we read this story as our hope is dying on a cross. Verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. The soldiers gambled his clothes by throwing dice. It was just a game to them. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. If he saved others, they said, let him save himself. If he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one, the soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are king of the Jews, then save yourself. A sign was fastened above him to bring any more mockery. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him, Scott says, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself. And hey, while you're at it, save me too. Everyone just continued to mock Jesus, make fun of them to bring as much shame. But the other criminal he saw something different. He says, the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man has done nothing wrong. You see, this guy, this criminal, he knew that he was guilty. And he knew the guy in the middle, all he was, was just showing love. And he sees something different. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. And by this time, it was about noon, and the darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone. Now, here's, where here's what's interesting, because this is actually a foreshadowing. A lot of historians believe that time when Jesus died, a eclipse happened, a physical eclipse where the moon blocked out the light from the sun. And we can believe that that took place, and that was very, very true. But here's something that we can't ignore is what that eclipse signified. You see, right now we live in a thing called common grace. Common grace is simply means that if you mess up today, we have forgiveness. Like for instance, we go out to lunch, the waitress messes up your food, you get angry at the waitress, call her name, you probably shouldn't have called. You go home, you start to feel bad. Like, oh man, that's not good. 
I feel really bad. But here's the thing. You don't have to live with that guilt because tomorrow is a new day. You can go up, go to that restaurant, apologize to that waitress, give her a really nice tip, which you probably should always do. And you can be forgiven and you're good to go. And you can, ah, we're good to go. Common grace. We live in a time of common grace. But there will be a time, church, where common grace doesn't exist. We read last, last week in the book of Revelation, there's a time where there's a separation that takes place. There's those who are with Jesus and those who are not with Jesus. And in this time, common grace is removed, meaning that if you're on the side of Jesus, you believe in love, eternal love, and in what God has, and you, you submitted yourself to Jesus and you followed his ways and you really trust Jesus with your life, you live in eternal grace. But Pastor Ron, what about the side that doesn't? The side that doesn't experience an eternity where there is no grace. In fact, there's a lot of sadness and you don't have the comfort of hope. There's despair absolutely no comfort. There's knowing that you did wrong and you wish you could have changed it all, but there's no forgiveness. And that's hell. In a very literal sense as it can be. And it's a place where I don't wish on anyone, not even on my worst enemies. And when the land went dark, when Jesus died, that foreshadowed this moment that's gonna happen in the future. The story continues. Suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary, the temple was torn down in the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands and those with the words he breathed his last. Verse 47, when the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what happened and he began to worship God. He said, surely this man is innocent. At least there's a couple of people that really saw Jesus, who he was. But when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what happened, they went home in deep sorrow. Game over. Jesus was the hope of the world and now he's dead. I can tell you what everyone thought that day. God lost. If God was really God, he lost. Or at least a very little bit, he turned his back. We saw Jesus dead. Jesus was being flogged. They pinned him to a tree. They even shoved a spear in his side to make sure he was dead. Nobody is coming back from this. I mean, the whole process of the trial was unfair. Pilate didn't have a backbone to save his life. He just did whatever the religious people wanted. Man, if Jesus was the son of God, God forgot his son. But here's the thing, church, you need to know. This is what you need to know about us versus suffering and evil. This is what you need to know about the story. And this is what you need to know in your circumstances when you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, that the very moment it looked like God was losing, God is always winning. He is always winning. It's almost like a game of chess. 
Where evil makes a move, God makes a move. Evil makes a move, God makes a move. Evil makes a move, God says checkmate. And we see that. But we only see the little moves up close. We don't see God's grand scheme of things. The moment where you think God is losing, God is always winning. God takes moves and turns and puts evil in checkmate every single time. Every time evil moves, God has a counter move. Like what's the worst thing you can do to good? The worst thing that you can do to love? Kill it. That's the worst thing you do. Eradicate it, get, annihilate it. And that's what evil did that day or thought he did that day. Because the very moment that Jesus died on the cross, Jesus says, ha, you thought you got me. I'm actually gonna use this to bring salvation to the world. Just like when you think God is losing, God is always winning. He's always winning. John Piper put it this way, I love it. He said, God did not just overcome evil on the cross. He made evil serve the overcoming of evil. He made evil commit suicide in doing its worst evil. Like evil just self-destructs. Evil thinks he's winning, but God says, no, 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 no. You think you move there. I'm actually gonna do this and game over. You think it's game over for us? Read the end of the book. Some of you already read the end of the book. I encourage the rest of you to do so. Because Jesus wins every single time. Every single time where you think evil is when God is, no, checkmate. There's one more story I wanna share with you. I'm gonna give you the condensed version. But it's the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. I love the story of Joseph. If you've never read the story of Joseph, I encourage you to do it. Really great story. There's a, there's a movie out there that does a phenomenal job by DreamWorks giving the story of Joseph. But Joseph um, really had a terrible childhood. Uh, it started out with he's having these dreams, and these dreams, uh, all his family kept bowing down to him. And so as a little kid, what do you do? You share everybody your dreams, right? And so he shares them and says, hey, guys, I've had these dreams. Uh, in these dreams, you guys come and you bow down to me. That doesn't go very well over the dinner table, right? Doesn't happen very, very well. And so the family gets really irritated, really specifically his brothers get very irritated about this. And so they conspired to kill him. And then they decided it might be more loving if we just sell him into slavery. And so they don't kill him, they sell him to slavery. Joseph ends up going to Egypt. His parents think he died. That's what the brothers told his parents. So Joseph is sold into Egypt and becomes a slave at a place called Potiphar's house. Time goes on and turns out Joseph is turning out to be actually a very good looking guy. He's doing the slaves work. He's getting the muscles, getting the looks. Uh, looks a lot like me probably. And then, <laughs> thank you guys to laugh at that. It was good. That guy agreed with me. I appreciate him. But he's turning out to be a very attractive guy and Potiphar's wife takes notice of this and he goes to, and she goes to Joseph and says, hey, Joseph, will you have sex with me? And Joseph says, no, my integrity is way better than that. I'm not gonna have sex with you. So he leaves the whole situation, which is the best way to flee any bad situation, people. 
And so he flees, but Potiphar's wife is so embarrassed and ashamed and everything that she makes up this lie, tells her husband that actually Joseph tried to rape her. Potiphar gets very angry, engulfed in rage, and sends him to prison. You guys really read the story. It's a very, very good story. And so Joseph's being thrown into prison for a very long time, and just one bad thing after another happens to Joseph. So now he's in prison. He serves his sentence, but the Pharaoh dies. Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh forgets that Joseph's in prison. And so now that Joseph, he already fulfilled his current sentence, he's now just forgotten in prison. Like there's no hope for this guy. Like nothing happens. So while he's in prison, there's two people in there that have dreams. Well, coincidentally, Joseph has a history with dreams. Not the best history, but he's got history with dreams. And so they share him his dreams. He interprets the dreams. These people get released from prison. The dreams happen. One guy lives and one guy dies. It's a kind of a twisted little story, but you should really read it. It's very, very good. And so what happens is Pharaoh, he begins to have dreams. The guy who had his, interpreted, his dream interpreted and came true, he says, hey, I met a guy in prison that's very good with dreams. His name's Joseph. Let's go down and get him. So they go down, bring Joseph up. Pharaoh says, hey, I heard you're really good with dreams. Joseph says, yep, I'm pretty good. And then this is Vaughn version. Some of you guys are looking at me. This is Vaughn version. And so he interprets his dreams and he finally says, hey, do you know what? Egypt is gonna have seven years of like just abundance. Everything's gonna be really good. You're gonna have overabundance. It's gonna be really, really great. But after those seven years, you're gonna have seven years of death and famine. And so the Pharaoh is wondering like, what do I do with this? Joseph advised him and says, hey, take what you have in abundance from the first seven years, store it away, so you have enough to survive through the famine and death. Not only you, but all the countries around you will survive. And so they do this, Pharaoh's impressed and listen, and puts Joseph second in charge of all of Egypt. And this comes with perks, right? I mean, if you're second in charge, it comes with perks. And so, Jesus, uh, so Joseph went from living in prison to living in a palace. He's got the robe, he's got the ring, he's probably got the eyeliner. He's, he's, he's pretty much adopted. He did, he did. And you'll find out why. You'll find out why this is important. Because right now he's pretty much adopted Egyptian right now. And so Joseph's story was all, ugh. And now it's all like, man, like things are going well. Jump to a different country. Joseph's brothers are still alive and are affected by the famine and heard that Egypt has food to give out to those who are affected by the famine. So they go to Egypt. They're in line for the food. And Joseph recognizes his brothers. The ones that tried to kill him the ones that sold him to slavery, the ones that told his parents that he's dead and they have forgotten him. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but his brothers don't recognize him. You read the story a little bit more, Joseph is having a huge meltdown. What does he do with this? He's second in command, so really if he wants to, he can chop off their heads. He can do anything that he wants, really. And so he puts them through a series, series of tests and almost gets to the point where he tries to imprison the youngest brother there. And by the end of the story, which I encourage you, please read the story. Joseph comes out to his brothers and says, do you know what, guys, enough with all of this? It's me. It's Joseph. Like, I'm your brother. The one that you tried to kill, the one that you threw me in slavery, the one that you told my parents that I'm, I'm just dead, the one that you have completely forgotten about. It's me, Joseph. And he makes this huge statement at the pivotal turn in his story where his brothers come back and he says, man, how can you ever forgive us? This is what Joseph said to all his bad circumstances. Genesis 520. You intended to harm me, 
but God intended it for all good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. You see, there's some of us this morning that you're probably Joseph stuck in the jail cell. You feel forgotten. There's some of you that you're Joseph being betrayed by his brothers. There's some of you that maybe you're Joseph and you're like, where is God in all of this? I want to encourage you. Instead of being so close to the suffering in front of you, step back and see the position that God is trying to put you in. I know that's hard. And I know it doesn't seem fair. But while evil and suffering and all that's happening in your life, you need to know God is in the background working something up for your good. He's working something. What you intended to harm me with, what evil intended to harm you with, God intended it for all good. Here's the last point, church. What evil intends to harm you, God will use it to bless you. What evil intends to harm you, God will use it to bless you. And it might, and it might not be right away. It might take a season. It might be a few years, but you will actually see God's hand in that suffering. I have found this out over and over and over and over again. And so I'm telling you as a living story that God is always up to something good. He's always up to something good. And just when you think evil is winning, God has a counter move and he's gonna put evil in its place and checkmate the devil. You need to know this church. So don't walk out of this building wondering where is God? Where is the hope? Because if you read the rest of the Easter story, Jesus did not stay dead. He rose back to life, defeated death. And you need to know this morning, while you're standing in the face of evil, you can be confident and bold enough and say, you're not gonna win. It's not gonna be today. It's not gonna be tomorrow. And you can give all that you got, but God has my back. And I will see victory in my life. Church, you're gonna see it. For some of us, that's really hard right now. But if you read all of the suffering in the Bible, flip 10 pages either way, you're gonna read of someone's suffering. Every book, every character, you see evil looking like it's going to win. But God overcomes every single time. If you want to rebuild your faith, get your face into scripture and read the encouraging stories of people looking like they're about to lose, but they end with winning. Every single time. And so I, I hope this encourages you because if God is truly God and says what he says he's going to do and he is who he says he is, it looks like evil might be winning, but God is going to have the victory. And so as we close this message, when we walk out of this place and you see the world as it is, know that God is going to win. He's going to win. You know that he's gonna have victory in your life and it's going to take place. So if you can bow your head, close your eyes.